0: Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Dale and I are super happy to be talking today with Dr. Patrick Downey, uh, who is a professor in the philosophy department at St. Mary's College in California. He is a colleague of uh, uh, Dav- the Davenant Institute, beloved Colin Redimer, our vice president, and he's, he's introduced Dr. Downey into our Davenant network. And one thing that has been a fruit of that is this really exciting publication that's come out earlier this year, which is really a reprint or republication with a new forward written by by Colin Redimer of Dr. Downey's work, Serious Comedy, the Philosophical and Theological Significance of Tragic (laughs) Comic Writing in the Western Tradition a really, really interesting and stimulating book. I'm so happy, in fact, that Davenant has taken this kind of passion project and reprinted it. Uh, Maybe, uh, uh, you know, there's plenty to talk about from a book like this. So we'll, we'll set it up, I suppose, in an easy way. Well, I say an easy way, who knows? But uh, you know we're playing with the categories here of uh, of uh, uh, comedy and tragedy. Maybe you know just for the audience's sake, hint, <laughs> for my sake, uh, we can uh, <laughs> we can just kind of very broadly define what what you're doing with the kind of category of comedy and tragedy, and what mm-hmm. your your maybe your thesis, most basically stated, is mm-hmm. uh, what you're trying to do with the Bible relative to those categories.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, uh, it's hard to distinguish the two, but my the, the distinction I work with is in a, a tragedy, you're like in a darkened theater looking up on stage and uh, you forget yourself and you focus on the tragic story, uh, the plot, as it were, on, on stage. But in a comedy, it's like the fourth wall is always broken and the comic poet addresses you in the audience. So then you can look at each other responding to the, the poet who's broken the fourth wall and then that's essentially what makes it a comic narrative, because then you're part. It's like you're Shakespeare. You're up there on the stage now. The minute you break the fourth wall, you're now on stage, and so you're aware of your response to the plot. And so that's the fundamental distinction between the two plots. One is the forgetful audience, the tragedy, and one is the self-aware, reflective audience in the comedy. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Um, this, is a, this is a very smart book. I
2: think that's the way that I'll probably end up talking about it. Um, and your argument is so technical and fine grained, but it does sort of like weave itself into a unity, which is ironic because this is what you're talking about as mm-hmm. relates to the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a section in there. Well, the first part of the book, you're talking about tragedy and comedy in Plato. Mm-hmm. uh and uh various other uh poet writers um mm-hmm. and you're you're explaining how uh plato is uh, and socrates are actually being very crafty mm-hmm. in the way that they're writing mm-hmm. uh so i want to talk i want i want you to talk a little bit about that if you could the, the way that you that you presented is like it seems like the dialogues are Uh, tragedy Mm -hmm. uh, but it's but it's really a sneaky way for them to introduce comedy and Mm -hmm. why is that important to notice in the dialogues i
1: guess Mm -hmm. yeah well well, famously uh, plato in particular is accused of being hostile to poetry and he kicks out the poets from his city and speech that he founds in the republic but then if you stand back and look what he's doing in the dialogue he he stands guilty as charged of the very accusations he makes against the poets and so he's not, a, he's not a dumb man. He knows what he's doing. So he wants you, the reader, to kind of notice, well, what about the very thing I'm reading right now? So then that breaks the fourth wall. You got to be aware of yourself reading Plato. And then you figure, well, what's he doing? Uh, and then you you pay more attention to it. You realize he's kicking out tragic poets, but he himself is a comic poet. And so he, so then you got to ask, why would he valorize comic poetry? Because whatever he is, when you're reading him, he is a poet. So philosophers may happen out there in the real world, but you reading a book, you're re- reading the work of poetry and it's comic poetry. So then you have to understand philosophy and the relationship between comic poetry and tragic poetry. And then, of course, because it's a comedy, you've got to try to get the joke. And, and the joke is on you if you don't notice that he's a poet. But if you notice Plato's a poet, they go, oh, I can get the joke. And and then the laughter and seeing what he's up to lead you to this larger argument about the relationship of poetry to the philosopher in general.
0: And- and what you, I think, go on in the book and then do is say, there's one way in which Plato sort of develops the Western relationship to comedy, and the mm-hmm. Bible does it in its own way. It, mm-hmm. it has its own angle. Can you say mm-hmm. kind of like in in some what you think, how you think the Bible in, in mm-hmm. a way makes it so, makes a comedy of itself?
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, well, it, well, it's like the comedy of, I think Aristotle and Plato are both comic poets when they write. But then they're saying you got to live your life outside of the writing. uh, And that's the life of the philosopher. But you got to do that on your own in your existence, to quote Kierkegaard, and not as a reader. Uh, But but you look at the comedy of the Bible, it's different because it says, yeah, this is a comedy. Uh, But if you're going to live your life in the light of this, you have to join in on the comedy. And this this book itself becomes your life. You can't live outside of this uh, comedy. It doesn't kind of kick you out. And walk out of the theater and live out there it pulls you in and says you've got to live in this narrative in this poem the rest of your life it is your very existence and why would that be possible plato and Aristotle can't do that because they're mere mortals writing poetry but the claim of scripture is it's god himself who's the author of this poem mm. so that's the only poem that a human could wisely ever live in terms of without kind of making a fool of themselves the way tragedy kind of makes a fool of you because you think you can kind of live in a tragedy but you got to forget yourself but here you could be aware of yourself and yet still live in a poem but it, it takes god as the author of scripture if it's not the author it's impossible yeah and he Everybody sort of breaks that.
2: and he breaks down the fourth wall because the mm-hmm. author sort mm-hmm. of reveals to us he talks directly to us exactly and he, he's the narrator of the mm-hmm. of the poem exactly. um, mm-hmm. which is which was a very helpful and brilliant insight you also talk about the unity of the bible you ask a question when we get to part two Mm-hmm. what do, is there even a bible mm-hmm. uh, yeah. what do we what do we mean when we right. say yeah. bible mm-hmm. um, and then you go on to talk about the unity of the bible mm-hmm. um so i have a bunch of questions but i want to sort of take it nice and easy mm-hmm. uh so maybe what we could do is um i'll start off with asking uh you use three authors in particular when you start to develop this idea of a mm-hmm. bible mm-hmm. uh so maybe when you were involved in that study Mm -hmm. what were some of the did you have any challenges to sort of established uh you know sort of christian cliches or Mm -hmm. the right way to think about the bible was that challenging as you worked with the bible as a literary device Mm -hmm. um and then if if um If you did sort of feel challenged once you popped out the other side and you and you found your your argument, Mm -hmm. uh, how did that affect you sort of emotionally? And has that done anything for your personal study of the scriptures on your own?
1: Uh, Did that sort of like, was that a paradigm shift for you? Yeah, well, well, I started off with an evangelical background. And so I took the Bible seriously and I saw it as a unity spontaneously. But then I went to Harvard Divinity School and Boston College. And there you're in a higher critical world where everything's broken into small fragments and the text behind the Bible. And so the Bible is now an artifact of higher critics. They are the ones that make it. And it's just a product of their scholarly expertise. And I knew that wasn't, that's not the Bible that I Cared about, uh, but then I, I found two guys that were having a major influence: uh, Eric Auerbach and Robert Alter, and a few other people that were seeing the Bible, reading the Bible as literature, and they were able to see it as a unity. And I realized, ah, oh, those guys, I know what they're talking about. That's the Bible I learned, mm-hmm. you know, at Calvary Chapel in Orange County, under Chuck Smith. That's the Bible that I knew. And they were the guys that brought it back in in their way of looking at it. So then I had to see what they're doing and go back and and account for why this fragmented Bible just is not even worth dealing with. And then the other, the further complication is the other literary reading of the Bible was Meyer Sternberg, who is Jewish. So, and also Robert Alter, both of them are Jewish and they read the Bible as a unity, but it's the Old Testament and not the New Testament. So then in one sense on my own, I had to add the New Testament as a unity in addition to their to their reading of just the old Testament and explain why it really is a unity. And, uh, so that was just in one sense, I was just going back to my original origins and having to think it through in the light of these possible criticisms of higher criticism and uh, literary reading of the Bible.
0: One thing you and I share, Patrick, apparently, uh, uh, I was, I was born in the LA area, though. I was in Texas by the time I was six, but uh, mm-hmm. my mom, my mom was part of the Costa Mesa Calgary Challenge. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: right. oh yeah.
0: yeah. So we yeah. have passed through the same portals. My right, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, you can. I, I always tell people you can take the boy out of Calvary Chapel, but you can't take Calvary <laughs> Chapel out of the boy. That, that's yeah, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah, that, I got my yeah.
1: the best education I could possibly hope for. The Bible is just hearing Chuck Smith work through it step by step by step. Yeah, that's every, everything get. connected to everything else. So you actually saw the unity of the Bible in one man because it was all unified in his head, and you heard it every every time he talked yeah. about it.
0: One one angle that's going on in the book that I think um, you know we we've, we've talked so far. Uh, you know, about in in one sense, I, I think almost when when I read your argument, it, it it's an argument in a sense that cashes out as explaining, cashes out cashs out in terms of being able to explain why the Bible is just truly the universal book. Mm-hmm. One might say that phenomenologically, as a matter yeah. of almost human fact, -hmm. The Bible has a universality that is very, very that is just not replicable uh, replicable anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, but but, uh, descending from that claim, you might say one angle that's just kind of part of the book throughout that I found really fascinating is that you're you're interested in the Bible as also a kind of political document Mm -hmm. that it always Mm -hmm. already is kind of laden with. Uh, speech or implication or, or weight mm-hmm. toward the world of the polis can mm-hmm. you kind of flesh out a bit of what what that how that angle is functioning in, in your in your mm-hmm. claim and in your imagination
1: right yeah well, well that's where Pl- uh, plato kind of sets the stage for that because it's kicking the poets out of the city so it's right. in founding a city you got to deal with poetry And as he says, the poet Homer is the one that educated all of Greece. So you can't understand the city without understanding the poetry that people live in terms of. But then by him criticizing the tragic poets, he's criticizing the fundamental illusion in all politics is that they, they forget themselves and they take themselves seriously in the world on stage which in one sense is kind of, they need a scapegoat. They need to all the problems that would cause civil war in the city to make it blow up. They put on stage and then they feel they've been purged of that in an audience. So poetry does that for the city. They have an artificial fake unity that allows them mm-hmm. to function, always in terms of some sort of tragic poetry. But mm-hmm. then uh, once the Plato introduces comedy, in one sense, he's subversive of the city. It can't hang together in the old way. So the city's kind of limping along. Uh, Philosophy is kind of a threat to the cohesion of the city. It it unmasks that lie of the scapegoating tragic theater. Well, with the Christian narrative, it addresses all those problems, but it shows the only true unity you can have is going to be a, a comic unity, but not as a critical one like Plato, but this is the real unity that doesn't depend on a scapegoat. So it really gives you the solution to all the political problems that you're always going to have. That's why the whole unity of the Bible aims towards finally the new Jerusalem at the end of the Bible, where you have the poet in his his poem and in the world he's created. He's at the center of it. That's the only way you can have a unified world or the term used, universal. And that's where this comedy is going. So it, it gives you something Plato and Aristotle could never give. They can critique the lie of the city, but they can't solve that problem. But this can actually critique it, reveal the problem, the lie of the city, but also give you a solution to the lie that that gives people what they really want with politics, Mm -hmm. a unified city.
0: What do you think that that just as a a brief follow up and then I want to hear Dale continue what he was asking, but Mm -hmm. but uh, what do you you wrote this, you know, decades ago and here we are reading it again. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and it, I can't help but kind of look at our political situation and you know, a civilization mm-hmm. falling apart. Yeah. Uh, and you mm-hmm. just talked <laughs> about the Bible's capacity to solve political problems. Mm-hmm. What, uh, there's a new relevance in a sense to this argument. what do mm-hmm. what would you, what do you see you know as you've reflected on scripture and its unified message you live mm-hmm. in 2022 like the rest of us, what do you see as sort of what the Bible, in a sense, has to say chiefly to our civilization? <laughs> what it has no. to offer to our civilization, or what it has oh. to offer our civilization that maybe it mm-hmm. may maybe a way of because there's a million things, but mm-hmm. maybe one way of specifying that is what does it have to offer our civilization that we've lost maybe in our imagination?
1: Oh boy! Uh, well, it's kind of what I'm working on. I've got a new book I'm working on called Blood of the Nations, and so mm-hmm. it's taking that idea of nations very seriously in the Bible. Uh, and it, it criticizes nations. They're all founded on lies usually, but you still, that doesn't mean to get rid of nations uh, any more than our bodies are dying and decaying. But the Bible's about resurrecting our bodies. Hmm. So you can't eliminate the body and just go to the soul or go to some Gnostic truth. You got to stick with your body. Likewise, you got to stick with political nations. Uh, and But you've got to have them coming back from the dead. So you've got to always go to the end of the plot and by looking at the end of the plot, then you can understand all of the complications beforehand and relativize them, but not 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 vaporize them. They're still always important, as sick as they are. Hmm. So I, th- I think the Bible just gives, gives you that orientation towards uh, nations, but nations in the future, which means you got to take nations in the present seriously, but also criticize them. But someday you'll actually have a nation started with Israel. But Israel, you'll have a new Jerusalem, you'll have a new king. You'll, you'll have the real king and then all the nations will come and be healed. So mm-hmm. you have to see them as sick, but also healed. So you can say any political thing. The city's sick, is based on a lie. The city has to be healed, but you can't get rid of the city. And the, the narrative is is that God himself gives us is how we're going to see this happen. So we have to retell that story again and again and live out that story. And that's how we can survive whatever age we're in is this is our real narrative. This is the real plot we're in. And no actual plots around us are really the last word or even ultimately that important in the light of this fundamental narrative that we live in that we are part of that book. We're characters in that story yes and I think that's so
2: important I found myself when I'm reading your uh book especially the first part uh you talk a lot about sort of mimetic uh imitation and Mm -hmm. this is the way that the um poet would present his lie right Mm -hmm. uh so especially within tragedies Mm -hmm. uh there's uh there's um a sort of catharsis that takes place when the poet presents something that should be pitiable mm-hmm. uh, a situation you know someone's going to die or something tragic happens mm-hmm. and the audience um feels a cathartic relief when they uh, recognize that that's something that could happen to me but it's not happening to me and therefore I feel satisfied emotionally in some way and that's Mm -hmm. actually the tool that the poet uses to grab the audience and sell them the lie Mm -hmm. uh, which is basically a recognition of the of the human condition Mm -hmm. um and if we're saying that that's sort of a paradigm for all politics Mm-hmm. uh then you wonder can politics be done in any virtuous way ever uh, or <laughs> right, is it yeah, always yeah. or does it always rely on sort of deception mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, leveraging emotions human emotions against themselves for control or something like mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. um yeah. which is I, I think one of the reasons why uh you know the Republic it's pure mm-hmm. communism because mm-hmm. if there's the war between the the, the, the citizens Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, even if we take care of that, we still have the war that will take place when I defend my family. So yeah. you get rid of the family and then the mm-hmm. war that takes place within me, but then the uh, war
1: against other Republics, you know, so, then so then you, never, you never, you never get rid of war, even in Plato's ideal city and speech, it's still a cave. So Plato's aware that, yeah, you know, you're never going to solve this problem. A, a tragedy can make you feel like you solved it that cathartic feeling, but it's a lie, and exposes a lie. But here, in, in terms of your question, that one of the big moves in the book is uh, between the tragic, ancient tragic poetry that Plato criticizes, but when you get to modernity, something strange has happened, because there, the audience forgets itself and sees the tragic solution on stage. They see the problem on stage, but they they are feeling the solution with the catharsis. But when you get to modernity, uh, take that famous story from Machiavelli. He Ramiro de Orca solves the problem for Cesar Borgia, but then he's pisses people off. So he cuts them in half. He puts the sides of his body on either side of a stump and puts a bloody knife in the middle of it. Okay. Now this is theater, but it's political theater. And Machiavelli is telling you this. So now everybody, we live in a world where we know the lie is being done. We know mm. what propaganda is. We have propaganda ministers. So we're in on the lies. It's never a tragic lie anymore. It's a comic lie. And so we, we, we're we always kind of winking and nodding and pretending we believe it. We don't believe any of the lies we tell ourselves anymore. That's what's weird about modernity. The mask mm-hmm. has been pulled off. We can't put it back on. We really can't fake ourselves out anymore, but we really wish we could. So we have this lust for tragedy, which you see in the German idealists. but that lust for it never works. They really can't do a tragedy. Nobody can pull it off. And so that's where Christianity's undermined that ability to really have that tragic solution anymore. We, we got a fake Christianity, communism, and all these things are fake Christian solutions, or we got to go for the real one, but we can't really have a tragic solution. It just won't work anymore. We know it. We're in on the con, so to speak, the con of tragic poetry.
0: Hmm. So Nietzsche cannot but uh become a bit juvenile.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. oh yeah, he's so envious. He's, he's uh, envious of Christ, he's the Antichrist, right? Everything's yeah. envy of Christ. So. Uh that's <laughs> uh, that's
0: a that's a really fast. Yeah, that that section on sort of the sort of the uh, the, the kind of comedy of a technological age, uh mm-hmm. I thought was really I, I think is just really fascinating. Tell us, I suppose, about um uh, the background in Strauss, I guess. This is mm-hmm. you know strauss is a is a figure in contemporary philosophy that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you know about him, you know a ton about him and you argue with people about him or mm-hmm. you just don't care at all. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> That's my impression. Right, right yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but, but, you know, part of this, it seems, is animated by some challenges posed by mm-hmm. Strauss. Maybe he mm-hmm. set up some of the problematics that you're trying to to mm-hmm. address here. Help us understand what what is kind of Strauss's challenge mm-hmm. and the book's relationship to that challenge.
1: Right, yeah, yeah, you're right. He set up the question that led me through this whole thing. Basically, he focused in on comedy and tragedy uh, by saying, this is the story I to start with, is that he says, uh, uh, famously, Jesus wept a few times. You read that scripture, but uh, Socrates never wept, but he laughed a few times. So then he says, well, maybe, maybe philosophy is more like uh, laughter and, 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 and Christianity is more like uh, weeping. because mm. it's, So he makes a comic and a tragic character. But then what he leaves out is the plot. But he does say uh, the plot, read the characters. But he does say the the only question worth asking is whether the Bible or uh, philosophy is true. Those are the only two serious possibilities in life. So that set me going. But then I had to refine his distinction between Jesus and uh, Socrates, because even though Jesus sweeps a few times, the plot he finds himself in is is a, is a comic plot through mm-hmm. and through. It's the ultimate happy ending. Mm-hmm. And so, so then what's what's I trying to sort that through then I realized well everybody it's not just Strauss everybody's making this decision between comedy and tragedy Hegel uh, Kierkegaard mm. Machiavelli uh, Plato uh, has it Aristotle has it they all have to deal with comedy and tragedy to talk about the philosopher and mm. so then lo and behold well that that opens up the whole Christian narrative as being a comic narrative and you realize, realize how it fits into the line of questioning starting from from Plato in the poets and that Strauss has just made that manifest that he he knew that was the the question to ask, and so I just kind of basically ran with his uh his question, and everything kind of mm-hmm. came together because it was such a crucial question.
0: Yeah, that's that's a that's very helpful. I've often wondered, in fact, if the significance of the fact that we don't have a record of Jesus laughing. In fact, I mm. I wrote an article on this one. You wrote an article but, on that. That's something yeah. like, and I think what I was trying to develop is maybe maybe the rhetorical devices that Jesus, Jesus never laughs in the gospel so that we can laugh. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. like right. that, oh, yeah. that's the uh, almost see in it, It's it kind mm-hmm. of consonant with what you're saying is mm-hmm. like, it's an irony. He's mm-hmm. a man of sorrows. And yet mm-hmm. it is the man of sorrows that renders the whole economy. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, right. Uh, that's, yeah. That's, that's yeah. really, that's really fascinating.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: One thing I'm um, curious about, uh, Dr. Downey is you call it a serious comedy. The mm-hmm. title of the book is Serious Comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was reading, um, when I first started reading your book, I'm thinking, well, the Bible, based on how you're describing tragedy, mm-hmm. is a tragedy. So in my mind, it was I was I and I'm like I can't wait to see how he develops this. I, you mm-hmm. won me over. I agree with your thesis, mm-hmm. uh, the basic claim of the book. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's it'd be hard to refute it, but. Mm-hmm. But we do have a scapegoat in Christianity. Um, we do c- feel a certain level of catharsis mm-hmm. through the brutal death of the Son mm-hmm. of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is a sort of relief mm-hmm. knowing that it's been my guilt has been sort of carried off with mm-hmm. the death. Of the scapegoat for me, yeah, uh, and in that way, it is a sort of like detachment where I'm watching mm-hmm. it unfold. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you go on to say what makes it a tr- comedy is that fourth wall is broken. The author lets us into the story; uh, mm-hmm. we can actually participate in it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but but uh, what do you mean when you say serious comedy? So. Mm-hmm are you sort of saying almost like a tragic comedy or how, what's the word serious doing there?
1: Yeah. Well, well, early on, it goes back to Plato's failure. So there's a change doing life. You can have a serious or playful life, but then a narrative, a poem could be either a comic poem or a, a, a tragic poem. So life and poetry are two separate tracks, serious versus playful versus comic versus tragic. So to say it's a serious uh, comedy is to put the two together because in Plato, you can have a, uh, you can have a, a comic narrative. I mean a tragic narrative, but that means you're not living your life seriously. Mm-hmm. But if you realize your narratives are uh, a comic, then you then you that's the only way you can have a serious life is not to live in the poem. So you got to separate a serious life from any narrative. You live your life seriously outside of the theater, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But in in the biblical thing, you know, you, you live your serious life in the theater. OK, but you can't do that because if you live in the theaters, you're forgetting it is a theater. It's artificial. It's made. It's, it's a lie. Mm-hmm. But the Bible, if God in the Bible, if God is the author of it, then this isn't a lie. This is the real thing. Yeah. So in your question, you're used to scapegoat. This, this is the Girardian influence on it. The very word scapegoat means that you're lying to yourself. That, guilt, that goat's not really guilty, but you're telling yourself it is. You got to lie to yourself to pretend that. That's what Jesus exposes, that he's not a scapegoat. He's the innocent lamb. He isn't guilty. He really is the innocent one. And yet you're lying to yourself thinking he is guilty. So he exposes the lie, but then he shows the only way that you could somehow overcome why you needed that lie in the first place, why you needed to lie to yourself. But then you got to go up to the author. And so then that means the serious comedy is that it can only be serious again if jesus is the tragic character so to speak that weeps but he's also the the logos through whom all things were made that were made that made also the bible wrote scripture Mm -hmm. so then our uh, serious abilities dependent upon who he is is that the son of god is that the logos incarnate if he is then you could have a serious comedy if he's not you can't have a serious comedy so that's why our faith response to this Bible d- makes it serious or not. It mm. yeah. could only be serious if we believe he is who he says he is. Mm. And we live in light of it. Uh, yeah. we, we
2: actually live a life. And that's one thing that um, is so helpful. Uh, Joe and I have had conversations about this. and Joe has a chapter written on uh, one of the other David books. Uh, I always mess it up. Christianity and philosophy. Philosophy for Christians. Yeah, What's philosophy the of and the Christian. Philosophy Mm -hmm. and the Christian, (laughs) uh, where the argument is basically philosophy is for life. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's not just sort of dealing in abstracts. uh, And you don't necessarily have to be a trained philosopher. You could be a dude who works on a car Mm -hmm. uh, and just knows a lot about how to live life well. Mm -hmm. Um, And it might just be his commitment to the story or the narrative of scripture has so deeply informed him and taken that internal struggle and unified it. Where he sort of moves around in reality, well, mm-hmm. uh, and that's really all we mean by wisdom. So, mm-hmm. mm. yeah. Well, yeah.
0: One thing that I uh, I think is interesting in what you're saying about uh, Plato is the the notion of kind of uh, in in giving the, the 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 polis a kind of tragic foundation. You have to make the polis based on a lie, mm-hmm. and you know, getting back to kind of the civilizational implications of uh, of the Bible is the universal book, Mm -hmm. does the Bible make possible civilization that is not rooted in a lie? Mm -hmm. Uh, And what what would that not lie be that nevertheless makes civilization possible? Because one thing that I think (laughs) of when you say that is, that almost sounds like whatever kind of common good positive politics is there, perhaps Mm -hmm. underneath of it in in, in realistically, in most human civilizations, is Mm -hmm. actually a kind of negative political Mm -hmm. order. Uh, mm-hmm. A kind of like a what we're what's really tying us together here is that we hate that stuff and those guys.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, right, right, yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. That's actually the foundation of the political order, and the rest tends to be epiphenomenon.
1: Yeah, right, yeah. But okay.
0: Christianity presumably can can mm-hmm. gesture the human civilization and and otherwise
1: mm-hmm. capture
0: yeah. capture what you think that maybe that means. Well,
1: well, we'll think of this in terms of friends and enemies. Uh, all, all, all civilizations are dependent upon, we are friends, but the hidden lie is that you need enemies to become friends. So you need to have, you have to have enemies out there at war. You need to have, you know, scapegoats politically or literally literal animals and sacrifices, and you cast them out of the walls of the city. And then the city is unified by having cast out that, which would undermine that unity. Well, that's the heart of the biblical story. The stone rejected by the builders has become the new foundation so that rejecting the stone, whether it be enemies, scapegoats, villains, you cast them out of the city. Well, Jesus is cast out of the city. Now that means you have to see this is the true city founded on that stone that's been cast out by all the false cities. And then you look at all cities from the outside standpoint. You see the city from the standpoint of the victim who's victimized by the city. So that's the new Jerusalem that reveals that they are lies, but also reveals you can't have a true city, but it's got to be founded on him. On the stone rejected by the builders
0: hmm.
1: and so that reverses field and you have to see everything from the standpoint of the victim and then you forgive the victimizers because we're all the victimizers but now we can live, truly live together without having to somehow have an enemy out there or some sort of pole out there to be who we are we can know ourselves and then also love one another as we are yeah. because of the new foundation
0: it would be harder to imagine in a global modernity a more relevant uh, imagining of the foundation of the polis, <laughs> I, <laughs> right, I must yeah. say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah.
1: Well, and again, yeah. that's, that's a technological comedy because that has been imitated by the Marxist comedy. Because what they do is they say, yeah, let's look at the victims. And if we go to the victims, the whole master-slave dialogue, like, let's look at the slave and build the new universal civilization, the foundation of the slaves and victims and will do it on our own politically, historically. Well, they're just imitating the Christian comedy, but they think they can invert it through their own means as though they can author this themselves. But we all know it's a lie. So they are clearly, this can only happen if God himself became that victim. He can be the new foundation, but we, we can't found a society without generating more enemies. So that's why Marxism is so bloody. It still becomes a violent, bloody uh, affair. It's got to kill. It's still got to cast out enemies, whether they now be the victimizers that are enemies. We we got to cast them out. Only the Christian foundation can have this without having to kill new victims, without having to have new uh, bloodshed, because because God can actually create this, uh, but humans can't do it without just recapitulating the same old violent mo, even even a technological comedy. Mm. Joshua Mitchell says something similar
2: in his book uh, America Awakening. Have you read that? Uh, i've heard of it but i haven't read that no american American awakenings it's great it's great and he talks Mm -hmm. about this the need for a scapegoat and the victim culture Mm -hmm. uh and how the elites ironically enough um you know think silicon valley sort of uh elites Mm -hmm. uh find their catharsis Mm -hmm. by advocating on behalf Mm -hmm. of the victims but Mm -hmm. they are the victimizers in a lot of Mm -hmm. real ways right yeah um, but it, you, you're, you're, you know, now that we're all in on the lie, and you can't mm-hmm. sort of sell it to us anymore. What does that mean for the future of politics? Like, could you conceive of mm-hmm. a political theater that develops a new sort of category to operate within? If everyone is sort of peeking behind the curtain, and we see mm-hmm. the comic poets, we're like, hey, hey, hey mm-hmm. and we're all like, yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, is, <laughs> how, how do we? Wh- what's Unless you think it's just going to continue that way until we all kill each other,
1: mm-hmm. um, which is you know, mm-hmm. probably <laughs> the, the probability
2: that happen- of
1: that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it sounds like Revelation, right? They all fingers end up crossed, each other. guys. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Uh,
2: but do you do you think that there's going to be any sort of switch in the political theater to sort of cast? cast aside the fact that we're all
1: looking in on it. Is and there am- it's after something-
0: Roger Stone?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't, it's, it's going to be the same old, same old stuff happening. Uh, you either, basically now you either become a Christian in the old fashioned sense, or you're just going to keep kind of feverishly lying to yourself, feverishly working the stuff out, but it's just ineffective. Nobody knows how to pull it off anymore. Nobody can really come up with a political solution. Except the old solution staring us in the face. That's really the only other option. The only option we've had for years is just now clearly that's the case. Because people are just frustrated. They they want meaning, you know, politics of meaning, all that. You just can't get meaning from politics anymore. We know politics doesn't give meaning in your life. We we try feverishly to have it give us that, but it won't give us meaning. The only but the, the politics of God that will give it to us, but human politics just won't do it.
0: Mm. One of the things um, I'm I find myself writing a lot more about these these days it's, it's interesting. it's very resonant with things I'm hearing from you that that it seems to me like one way of describing kind of the modern temperament or the modern mood is that we're all, I think we're perhaps all more cynical than mm-hmm. we could possibly imagine. Like if right. we, we could really get in a time machine and understand just what the cognitive life mm-hmm. of somebody a thousand years ago was versus mm-hmm. now, right. I think we'd find that we're all cynical at an almost metaphysically cosmic oh, yeah. level. Right. And, that, yeah. and that maybe that's the, so, you know, I almost wind up thinking like, what, what, what does it look like to kind of he, be healed of that that can't mm-hmm. be good <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. and Lewis it seems to me Lewis's mm-hmm. answer to this it seems to me is just very often uh his notion of reenchantment is so simple and non-fancy it really mm-hmm. is the, it's mm-hmm. the re-enchantment of your neighbor mm-hmm. uh that your neighbor, na- the, the the face of the human which the Christian narrative illuminates mm-hmm. I mean, right. Christianity yeah. is the foundation of the, of mm-hmm. the that shining of the light on man himself, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. in a sense, in the most glorious sense we can speak of that. And mm-hmm. it seems to me one of the paths to quote unquote reenchantment, you might mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. is uh, that 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 well, you know, what the the, the other book we're publishing by Treherne, the shining human person, mm-hmm. uh, and yet it takes perhaps the the reign of Christ in the human heart mm-hmm. to really shove us into each other in that way in a mm-hmm. way that would ultimately be effective right uh, yeah it, it yeah. takes grace in other words yeah yeah
1: yeah uh yeah well your use of the word en- enchantment is real intriguing because in one sense enchantment is the old paganism of tragedy the world was enchanted in the tragic world that's kind of the world of magic etc the world right. seems to be magic but it is right. chanting because it's a spell it's a spell and it's a lie but christianity dispelled that spell and so right. It disenchanted the entire universe. The great God Pan is dead. People heard throughout the Mediterranean when Christ died. Pan, the enchantment has died. Uh, and mm. we just, we're just slowly realized, oh, we can't enchant ourselves anymore. So what's the solution to, to a disenchanted world? You can't be enchanted anymore. You need the real deal. If yeah. we're going to be, if we're going to be kings and queens and have that weight of glory, we're all like Queen Elizabeth and need to be, you know, we need to realize we have this incredible thing that God expects us to be kings and queens uh, brothers and sisters of the real king it's going to be in his story it's not going to be camelot it's not going to be king arthur it's going to be the biblical story that's not enchantment that's real yeah and you have to have that reality it's not an enchantment at all no so one mm. has to say that that is the real world that is more real than anything else everything else is kind of a shadowy world but that's real and we find ourselves as characters and that that's the only plot that we live in that is right. our plot
0: yeah enchantment in that sense is almost like a. uh uh yeah, it's a, it's almost a di- it's almost it's almost yeah, it's an it's an un it's a, it's a reversal of a modern enchantment you might say. Mm-hmm. I often want to say like it's not the world that's disenchanted it's we it's it's us. Mm-hmm. We're unattuned to the fullness of the meaning mm-hmm. of things. You yeah, might right, say yeah. something like yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, right, and yeah. and, and mm-hmm. to re readequate a demand is to be re plugged into the fullness of the meaning of things. Mm-hmm, uh, right. But that's a that's that's for you to become awake. Right. It's not yeah, the right. world to change. It's not yeah, a subjective right. thing. It's right, you just yeah. becoming more in reality. In a sense. yeah.
1: You can't you can't romantically project this you know yeah. kind of beautiful dew on the universe as exactly, though you know yeah it's it, 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 not fairy it, it,
0: dust sprinkled on it, exactly thing, right yeah. the glow a little bit.
1: Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> it's your the,
0: atrophied soul becoming alive.
1: Uh, but, the, but that but that philosophical move is a big movement in in the uh, in uh Hegel and Marx and all the idealists. They really wanted to re-enchant the world. They wanted to bring tragedy back. They yes. were desperate to do that. The romantics just were desperate to do that. And it just clearly didn't work. They they couldn't believe in their own chanting spells. They were well, disabused almost- all the time.
0: It seems to me that almost uh, what's weird, you know, when I again thinking of cosmic cynicism, it mm-hmm. seems like that project itself presumes a cosmically cynic, has a cosmic cynicism mm-hmm. at its foundation because mm-hmm. that vision of reenchantment, or at least could, that mm-hmm. vision of reenchantment assumes a kind of primary datum that's mm-hmm. already meaningless and yeah, has right, to yeah. have in some way in the imagination mm-hmm. something attached to it, where the right. whole point is it's God's mm-hmm. exhale logos mm-hmm. all the way down yeah there's yeah meaning there's a density of meaning mm-hmm. <laughs> in the thing yeah
1: right well we'll put it this way uh think of it just in terms of comedy uh, we live in a world where everything's funny we're snarky <laughs> about everything you can't take anything seriously kind of the David Letterman from our generation you just put somebody on David Letterman's couch and you made an idiot of yourself if you take yourself seriously because right. the whole point is you can't take anything seriously and it's funny if you take yourself seriously so laughter just undermines everything. It dissolves everything. That's, again, the technological comedy. But, but does that mean you get rid of laughter, take yourself seriously? No, you have that cosmic laughter of that, of God's poem that is a comedy. That's the real laughter you can take part of in. But that's why all the other laughter is just haunts you because it just undermines what you want. We're horrified by our own humor. It takes yeah. away all meaning, meaning, meaning from us. We're, we, laughter is just like this disease for us. But the solution is not to become serious. The solution is to become serious through God and live in his joke against our silliness. Yeah, yeah. it's it's. I think we need a
2: reattunement to the idea of festivity. I actually mm-hmm. talked about this not long ago, but... Um, you know, if you think of what it means to live a festive, festival mm-hmm. life, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just the appreciation of being. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the bottom, the ground of being is God that has donated being. Well, that's mm-hmm. an act of love. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the ground of everything really is love. And that mm-hmm. frees you to celebrate life mm-hmm. fully once mm-hmm. you understand the ground of that life, mm-hmm. where it comes from. Right. Uh, and, and we see it more, most clearly in the supper uh Mm -hmm. the the wine and the bread Mm -hmm. is are the normal ordinary things that we take to celebrate Mm -hmm. eternal Mm -hmm. life Mm -hmm. uh and that sort of move I think is what's missing because we long to giggle we Mm -hmm. long to have a good time we throw Mm -hmm. parties we Mm -hmm. try to cover up all the depression and anxiety by stimulation and whatever Mm -hmm. um because our soul is aching for something bigger and greater and that's actually uh, in ordinary things appreciated mm-hmm. deeply. Mm-hmm. And I think the, you know the, tech, the, techno, the, the technocratic world that we mm-hmm. move around in, as uh, Joe wrote about this, but it's sort of like removed us from nature so much so that mm-hmm. we become little self-contained, independent units of economic mm-hmm. you know stuff uh Mm -hmm. wherein calculating all the moves of your of our life becomes Mm -hmm. the meaning of life Mm -hmm. rather than life for the sake of living life because of where it comes from Mm -hmm. um so I do think there's a I think there's something deeply wrong with us you you know I read an article about the laugh emoji on Facebook have you, did you read this article? Jim? No, no, I, I haven't heard of it. Oh man, it was really good. I forget who wrote it, but it's basically, you know, you write something serious on Twitter or whatever, or Facebook, mm-hmm. and then your enemies come along and they just laugh at you, right? Oh, it's just uh, like yeah. a constant laughing. And we're, it's mm-hmm. almost like we're crazy
1: in that way. <laughs> um, yeah. So so, as Nietzsche says of the last man, he says, there's ice in their laughter. Mm-hmm. So the, la- the laugh man, the last man laugh. But, you know, that laughter is horrifying. Yes. It, that's the last man. It's yeah, it's a yeah, the Joker, metaphor, exactly the right. Joker. Some men just <laughs> right. want to watch the world burn. I mean, yeah, that, right, that, yeah, that, yeah that's right. The,
0: <laughs> you know, it's in, you, you're you performing this analysis of Plato that, again, I just find really fascinating. I wonder what you think of kind of the late antique Christian relationship to the theater uh, in, this res- in this respect, because uh, Augustine famously kind of has this, the Christians for for various reasons, uh, just as Plato Mm -hmm. kind of develops his critique of the tragedy, uh, Christians uh, have a complicated relationship to the theater and Mm -hmm. in Christian civilization, it tends to go away a little bit nevertheless mm-hmm. it's kind of replaced by liturgy so that mm-hmm. like christian liturgical yeah. forms right. yeah. have yeah. a theatricality yeah. to them
1: oh yeah yeah but
0: but augustine's confessions is this mm-hmm. incredibly mm-hmm. unique text mm-hmm. and it's it's it would be kind of interesting i wonder to i guess ask uh, on the one hand here's augustine writing well you know don't go to the theater because it might mm-hmm. stimulate stimulate your mm-hmm. passions too much
2: right yeah and yet yeah. he
0: writes this piece this almost new genre of literature Mm-hmm. that is so incredibly moving <laughs> yeah oh yeah right yeah <laughs> and yeah. so I, I wonder you know what you yeah. think
1: well the the new forward i wrote to this edition is basically that's the, augustine's the guy that ties it together and uh like it, and it starts with the underground man and dostoevsky says you guys don't know how to live you only live out of books but i at least try to live free from books well <laughs> augustine way back in the day he he quite happily Well, he starts off living unhappily out of books. He lives out of Virgil. He lives out of the theater uh, spectacles. And he's kind of horrified at that. He knows it's a lie. And it's as bad as as it is for Dido. You know, it leads to the burnings of lust that you see in Carthage. But then he doesn't free himself from the theater. What he does is he lives out of a different book. So the whole structure of the confessions is written out of reproducing the whole biblical story. So the, mm-hmm. the the story reproduces not only Virgil because he's like Virgil, I mean he's like Aeneas on his way to Rome, but the larger context is the first and second Adam and the first and second tree. So it's structured around the first tree where he steals the pear trees. That's he's recapitulating Adam with the with mm-hmm. the tree of knowledge, good and evil. But then he f- throws himself under the tree in Milan, and the final solution that he hears that little voice say, "Take and read, take it's and what? read." Yeah, and mm-hmm. yeah, reads a book. But then what does the book say? put on the lord jesus christ so you're not only reading out of romans but that character the main character in the story you put him on like a role and you become this character in that plot and that is your solution that's your salvation to put on the lord jesus christ in the story of which he's the main character and the author as well
0: you've solved mm-hmm. the major uh mysterious question of why augustine spends so much time talking about that pair uh <laughs> yeah, exactly right, yeah.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. a pair is never a pair <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah that's right
2: yeah so i as we sort of wind down here i do want to talk about uh dante mm-hmm. um because dante is unique uh he's a unique poet um in that he was doing something much different than you know plato and and uh socrates when he writes mm-hmm. the inferno mm-hmm. um you presented a paper on this a couple years ago at convivium uh mm-hmm. before we jumped on and started recording I, I told you at while i was reading your book i started mm-hmm. to get your paper yeah because yeah. we were we were, i drive up from florida to south carolina for the conviviums i usually got a couple guys with me mm-hmm. and we read the papers in the car hmm. And your paper was the first paper i wanted to read that year and i remember listening going i have no idea <laughs> what <laughs> he's saying to me yeah. uh, how uh, can
0: dante be bad?
2: yeah, yeah right, right. Uh, <laughs> but maybe you can talk to us about uh because dante's inferno is a comedy right mm-hmm. um so Set us up a little bit and talk about maybe the uniqueness of Dante's poem uh, and what he's doing there
1: and what he's attempting to seize for himself. Yeah. Well, if you were to just stand back and forget about scripture and just look at that strange comedy by Dante, not just Inferno, but the other two ones, it's a strange book because you don't have a hero like uh, Odysseus. You don't have Aeneas. Who's the hero of the story? The very guy that wrote the story. Right. That's a strange sort of hero but we're so used to it, we don't notice it, but that's pretty weird, okay, but if you know the scripture, that's not weird at all, where to get the idea that you'd make a poet the main character in his own poem, well, that's the scriptural story, because Jesus is the poet of the story through whom all things are made, that is the main character of the story, and so Dante's just kind of got the idea of the way to tell a story from the Bible, and he did it himself, so so that explains that, but then but then you stand and go, well, that's kind of problematic, because yeah, if, if God is the poet, and you're Jesus, the Logos, yeah, you can do that. But if what if you're just mere Dante and you make yourself the main character in the story? Can you really do that if you're not the poet of all of nature as well as this poem? Uh, somehow it's very different. So is this blasphemy? How could he do such a thing? Especially when he's telling you, in one sense, the same story. He's in the same world. So mm-hmm. when you see the gates of hell, that eternal omnipotence has created me. You know, and you go, well, I don't know. I That's not in the Bible. So who created those gates? Dante himself created those gates in his poem. So who the hell is this guy?
2: Mm-hmm. It's, it's,
1: it's just, it's incredible hubris that we don't even notice because we're so taken with Dante. We kind of forget what he's imitating, the biblical story. But if you see what he's imitating, then you got to say, well, imitation is always dangerous because maybe you're imitating as a rival. Maybe the, the biblical story is a rival to what Dante is trying to do here. And so, so then you just have a lot more tensions that come out once you start being aware of this. And then uh, more and more details show up and you go, wow, this is really problematic what Dante's doing. And then when you hear Dante talking about his, how to read his poem, he takes upon the Aquinas' account of how you can read scripture and scripture alone because God is the author and applies it to his poem. Well, right. it, it, Aquinas means you can't read uh, Dante that way. Because he says, only when God is the author of scripture, can you connect things to things. But Dante is quite happy to do that. And, and he tells his readers, read me the, that way, too. So, again, mm-hmm. you go, well, what is this guy doing? This is really hubristic.
2: Uh, yeah. I, it, it begs, it, it prompts a bunch of questions in my head. So, right now, I'm studying. Um, I run a school here in Florida, a classical mm-hmm. school. And right. uh, we're reading through Virgil. Uh, mm-hmm. We're also reading through on Christian doctrine, confessions. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of my other students are reading the Odyssey. Um, so anyway, uh, I use literary, to, I use literature mm-hmm. as a way to um, sort of show the continuity of reality right? Mm -hmm. Like this, the minds of our predecessors have thought about the structures of reality in this Mm -hmm. way. What is man? What is the city? What is this Mm -hmm. world? What's our relationship to it? What are the virtues? And this shows a sort of emerging uh, continuity of Mm -hmm. what it means to be a human. Mm -hmm. Um, So in some of the, throughout the book, and even with Dante, it Mm -hmm. seems like what we're do what's the function of literature in the life of a Christian Mm -hmm. um because I think some could probably say well if the Bible is the book of books Mm -hmm. do I need another book Mm -hmm. do I really need to know about Aeneas do I really need to read about Odysseus Mm -hmm. uh so how would you what what do you think about that? Like, what is the function of literature? He teaches yeah, at a yeah.
0: great book school.
1: good answer to this one. <laughs> well, well, yeah, well, you should at least you should at least be asking that question suspiciously, especially in both as as Christian, but also as a part of the Jewish faith. If you don't take that commandment against making graven images seriously, notice what what's proscribed. You don't have any image of anything in the heavens anything under the earth or under the sea. Well, these are all things you can't eyeball with your eyes. You can't see them. Hmm. So why are they being proscribed? He's not saying don't make a statue of a you know of a giant uh, dog or something like the Egyptians. He's talking about things that put the whole universe together with the things you can't see that you can't know, you can ask about, but you can't answer with your own eyes. And that's what you can't do because you don't know it and you've got to know you don't know it. So one should be very wary of that. Don't give a fake knowledge when you don't have it. And that's why literature is so so dangerous, because it kind of gives you a universe that isn't necessarily the the real universe that you take it as real. And that's why Plato calls it a lie, but also the Old Testament calls it uh, the temptation of idolatry. The only world you can live in is someone that has seen all those things, the God who created everything. And he actually happened to write a book. So you got to take that book radically different than all other books. This is the book with a capital B. Every other book has to give an account for itself in the light of this book. They're not on an equal level. This is the book that judges other books. They may be idols. This is not an idol. You only have idolatry if you have the real thing. If there's not the real thing, there's no idolatry. But if mm-hmm. there is idolatry, it's because you got the real deal. So then who could really know what's hidden behind all our veils? It'd be the creator of the universe. And he happened to write a book. So, but that's why we got to be very, very wary when we read or write books because mm-hmm. of that one book mm-hmm. and its author.
0: Maybe so yeah. I just. Oh, go
1: ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah.
2: I, was just well, he, say, I think he was going to say, "Just burn down all the liberal arts universities." <laughs> yeah. no, no. But, <laughs> but maybe it, a final—it's it, it,
1: seductive. A, you just be careful of powerful yeah. seductions, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah.
0: Maybe a final uh, and uh, fun question is: is wh- which uh, Christian, or, or, or maybe maybe what which literary figures of mm-hmm. uh, you know, roughly speaking, Christian civilization or post-Christian mm-hmm. civilization? Uh, do you think uh, reflect or uh, writing stories that only could have been written in light of the event of the Christ? What, is there, mm-hmm. what, what, uh, what narrator or yeah. Yeah. What story writers, you know, do you read and say this person mm-hmm. has internalized the Christian comic narrative in mm-hmm. a way refl- reflected it in the art of, of story writing? Uh,
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, well, say contrast Tolkien with uh, Dante see, Tolkien it's in one sense, it's just a world totally on its own, and yet, as a Christian, you read it, and go, oh, I kind of know what he's talking about. I know what's going on behind here. I know what's going on, you know, in the in the realm of men later on, but he doesn't say any of that. You you can put the two together, but that means you got to already live in that world of scripture, whereas Dante, it, it, it tempts you to supplant scripture. It becomes the imagination that you imagine God's world more than the world you actually read about in scripture. So, so it's, it's, but Dante has been much more influential than Tolkien ever could be because Dante, you know, really is going for the brass ring of what God did Whereas Tolkien quite happily subordinates himself to that. He, he, he doesn't go head to head with it. And so, so he's less likely to, so to speak, fool you and take his world as more real than the world you live in as a Christian believer. Hmm. And yet it's still saturated through and through with that world. You see it everywhere. If you know that narrative without it actually you know, vying to replace it. Right. What about Lewis? Are you, uh, did you, have you ever read, have you read a lot of Lewis? Not a whole lot, but yeah, the the allegory is closer to Dante in one sense than Tolkien. But the fact that it's an overt allegory separates it again from Dante. You Mm -hmm. don't take seriously this little world because you know it's, you know, he's he's the author kind of making it up. But you know what gives it heft is a story outside of it. It's that biblical story that gives meaning to Narnia. Likewise, it's a biblical story that gets me to Tolkien. Whereas Dante, no, the biblical story gets sucked into Dante. And now you read the biblical story through Dante. Yes, almost as a rival as a possible supplanter of it.
0: Hmm.
1: Well, when we make it to glory, we can grab Dante
2: and say, "What were you?" Doing? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, well Doctor Downey, thank you so much. Uh, yeah. This book yeah. was an absolute pleasure. Uh, heartily commend it to you. Serious comedy. Uh, dr patrick downey it's uh it's an imaginative smart um invigorating stimulating uh read and i'm uh the world is better off because of it brother so thank you very much
1: yeah. well thank the devon for uh, bringing it out in the second edition yeah yep
2: yep yeah. and we'll look forward to your new book any idea when the pulp when uh, you're looking to publish uh, i got to
1: get it written first yeah <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah, a slow yeah, process yeah, yeah. So next yeah. year obviously yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. right. <laughs> well thanks so much for your great questions and uh that you're interested in this. I really enjoyed the conversation. It's fabulous. Yep. Yeah.
2: Very good. And when you do get it published, we'll have you back on and talk, but I, I expect we'll probably see you again sometime soon. Make it sure. down to it South great. Carolina. All right. Yeah,
1: sounds good. <laughs> all right, <laughs> everyone. Good.
2: Well, thank you so much for uh, dropping in, watching us today. Pick the book up, check out YouTube. We're on uh, iTunes and all the podcast things, but until next time, Joe, I love you, brother.
0: Thank you, man.
2: And we'll see you next time. Take care.